If you're new with us, we have been making our way through the book of Luke. Luke is a careful historian. He is a physician. And his attention to detail, if you've noticed as we've made our way through, is is pretty evident throughout this work. His purpose in writing, according to Luke chapter 1, is to give us certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Let me just pause real quick here. We've got some folks in the back still standing. So if you have space and you can kind of squeeze together, especially now that the little ones are gone, feel free if you would would not mind doing that. If you have some space near you and we just kind of want to hold up a hand, we've got two spaces, we've got one, that'd be great as well. Don't be shy. That was not hypothetical. Got two spaces? Got one space? Okay, we're finding it. All right, thank you. Got a hand in the back. I see that hand. (laughs) We have been making our way, as I said, through the Gospel of Luke. Thank you all who are standing in the back through the song service, um, being willing to to stand and to worship with the rest of us. Luke is writing, as I said, so that we might have certainty that Jesus actually is the Christ, that we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught about Jesus. Jesus. And that's why he's writing. And here, where we're picking up in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is now uh, well over halfway through his public teaching ministry. And one of the central themes that continues to come up again and again, as we've seen in Luke, is the theme of the kingdom of God. In fact, if, if you read through Luke, you just continue to see the kingdom of God referenced again and again. So what exactly is The kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is like any other kingdom in the sense that there is a king, God, who rules over a specific domain. Now, we know that God rules over all things, but the kingdom of God is the specific rule of God over those who trust in him. But unlike an earthly kingdom, God isn't ruling in the same way that a physical king would be ruling. Physical kings rule and their physical kind of uh, authority is really the limit of their power, right? They, They can't change people's souls. They can't even really change people's minds. But we know the kingdom of God is actually different than that. The kingdom of God is actually a spiritual kingdom. Because God is spirit and he reigns spiritually over his people, over the church. But lest we think that the kingdom of God is only spiritual, it's also physical. It's physical because we are physical. And so as God who is spirit reigns spiritually over his church, we who are physical live out our faith. We make disciples. We share the gospel we preach the good news. We, we walk in obedience to the Lord in very tangible, physical ways. And so you can see how the spiritual kingdom of God also has a very real, physical component to it. Now, I say all of that because the focus of our text this morning is on the kingdom of God. And just like our text from last week, this week's text is fairly complicated. <laughs> in fact, two weeks ago, Pastor Nick preached the parable or the the prodigal son. It's a wonderful text, powerful text, maybe one of the most well-known 
parables in all of the Bible. And then last week, you remember we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager, which may be one of the least known parables in all of the Bible. And next week, Pastor Taylor is going to preach on the rich man and Lazarus, which is somewhat straightforward. This week, we have this text that Ashley just read for us. So if you were wondering as she was reading, like, what in the world is going on here? You are not alone. In fact, even this week, as uh, typically our pattern is, I spend Mondays all day working on the text for the following Sunday. And then Tuesday morning, our pastoral team gathers with the interns, and we kind of, I kind of lay out, I think this is where we're going. And I'll just tell you, there was lots of laughter and joke making this Tuesday. Like, yeah, where, where are we going to go here? We got all kinds of things about the law and people forced into the kingdom. And then out of nowhere, Jesus drops this bomb about divorce in the middle of what has nothing to do with divorce or so it seems. Like what in the world is happening? So what I want to do for our time together this morning is I want to give you kind of what I think is a helpful summary of all five of these verses. Verses 14 through 18. And we're going to continue to kind of come back to this summary. But I want to offer this in hopes that this summary, which is very imperfect because I wrote it, but that this summary would be a helpful tool for us to see what the Holy God has written to us here in these verses. And so this summary is going to be on the screen throughout the message this morning. We'll keep revisiting this. But the central theme is this, and if this is long, I'm sorry, this is the... I could only boil it down to this. Entry into the kingdom of God is not earned by our merit. It has an entirely different value system than that which our fallen world chases after. And the good news is that the days of the Old Testament promises and foreshadows are over. And the kingdom at last is here. And everyone is urged to enter into it. Not as something brand new, but as the arrival of that which the Old Testament actually pointed and prepared us for. So, with that said, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help, both for me in proclaiming God's word this morning and all of us in hearing and receiving God's word. And then we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, the grass withers and the flower fades, you tell us, but your word endures forever. I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for these verses that are somewhat even hard for us to understand and somewhat complicated. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. I thank you that as is our pattern here, Father, preaching week by week, line by line through the text, we are obligated to address things even though they're hard. Thank you for the joy that comes and the riches that come through mining deep into your word, seeking to understand. And, and I thought, Father, I also thank you for the humility that comes in realizing that your ways are above our ways. So I pray, Father, with the psalmist, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word this morning and that you would incline our hearts towards your testimonies and away from worthless gain. That you would teach us and that what we see we would believe and what we believe we would savor and what we savor 
would lead us to greater joy in you and thereby we would more faithfully honor and glorify you. That is our life's purpose. So would you help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is continuing to teach and to preach on money. Specifically, in verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who were the religious elite of Jesus' day, hearing all of this, respond in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, not all Pharisees were lovers of money. Many of them were, however, and these are the ones who mock Jesus for his teaching on money. In fact, it's interesting if you just step back from the text for a minute and just kind of scan the horizon of Christ's ministry, you see that early on in Jesus' public ministry, the Pharisees were curious about Jesus. They kind of questioned him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And then that curiosity turned to jealousy. They were jealous of him. That jealousy turned to anger, and soon that anger will turn to hatred. In fact, back in chapter 15, verse 2, we saw the Pharisees grumbling about Jesus, and now it's not just grumbling. Rather, they're mocking Jesus. They're ridiculing him. And helpfully for us, here Luke gives us a behind-the-scenes kind of x-ray of their hearts. He tells us here in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So the reason they're mocking and ridiculing Jesus is because his teaching is cutting too close to the heart of their idols. It's so true, isn't it, that when Scripture reveals our own idols the idols of our heart, it's easier to push away the thing that reveals our idols than to push away our idols. Scripture addresses, for example, our love of money, perhaps, and, or our unforgiveness, or our impurity, or our anger, and it's so much easier to say, well, that's just a cultural thing for them then that doesn't apply to us now. Or we try to find some expert who says that the text doesn't mean what it says, or how we've gotten it all wrong, or we simply ignore what we read. And that's precisely what the Pharisees are doing here. But Jesus, notice, does not give them any latitude to bask in their self-righteousness. Instead, he cuts right to the reality of their heart, like a skilled surgeon here in verse 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Remember, Jesus is right in the middle of teaching about what it, is, what it looks like, what it is like to live as kingdom citizens, as kingdom people. And these Pharisees in their self-righteousness think, well, you know what? I, I'm glad all these other pagans are here listening because they need to hear this message from Jesus because we've got this covered. We do all the right things externally. We avoid all the wrong things externally. 
The Pharisees, we know from Scripture, lived for their image. They loved to be respected and admired. Their life's aim was to impress others. To connect this to kind of our main theme from earlier, they sought to merit their place in the kingdom of God by what they did. Jesus, in fact, would say in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. How tragic. And what a sobering warning it is for us today who can look so good, so cleaned up, so knowledgeable, so faithful on the outside, but on the inside be completely dead. And we've seen even just in the last number of years in our culture, high profile Christians who it seems are sources of inspiration and authority and godliness and Maybe they have incredible gifts for preaching or teaching the word or have written really helpful books. They're leaders. They're sought after for their godliness only to find out through scandal or through truly seeing the character of their heart that their heart was dead all the while. It should be a a call and a warning for us to guard our hearts to cultivate affections for God, to care more about what God thinks, the God who sees the heart, than what mankind thinks. How tragic it is that these Pharisees sought to justify themselves before men, and all the while they should have been seeking the justification that only comes from God, the God who sees the heart. And Jesus would later say that these Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They look impressive on the outside, but on the inside they're dead. For the things that the world values, opulence and wealth and materialism and all other forms of money are an abomination in the sight of God. It's good for us to note here that the kingdom of God, as we think about it, as as we study it, has an entirely different value system than that which our world chases after. And our God sees through our efforts to impress. He sees our heart. He sees our motivations. He sees our desires. And he's not impressed by our materialism. He is not impressed by our desire to be impressive, to wow people, seem like we have it all together. Commentator David Garland writes, the problem here is that the Pharisees consider themselves just despite holding a view about money that is antithetical to God's. Like they thought, again, they were okay because they did all the right things on the outside. Like, if they had social media accounts in their day, I mean, they'd be posting all kinds of really inspiring, deep, intellectual, helpful things online. And they would have pictures of how they're serving the poor, and they'd be posting reels about the the latest insight they gleaned through their seven-hour, 2 a.m. morning Bible study. And we'd be like, wow, look how godly they are. And yet it wasn't so. The God who saw their heart 
said what they were doing was an abomination. I think it's also helpful for us to see that following the law of God, even in the Old Testament, was about more than just external acts of obedience. In fact, Jesus makes that clear here in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So the John here is being referenced as John the Baptist. You might remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was a few months older than Jesus. John was, uh, if you know anything about John, he was a unique individual, wasn't he? And he lived out in the wilderness, kind of a mountain man. He wore lots of leather, ate really close to the ground, right? Locusts and wild honey. Most importantly, though, John's mission, his purpose, was to prepare the people for Jesus. And he did that by preaching about the Messiah who was to come. And those who heard John's message and believed that Jesus was about to send the Messiah who would rescue his people, those people believed in God and were baptized, which is why John is called John the Baptist. But John is also a transitionary person. Like before John came along, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, people expressed or showed their trust in God's promise to send a Messiah by obeying the Old Testament law. The law didn't save them. The law was never designed to save anyone. But it reflected their faith in the promised Messiah to come, the one whom God would send. And then along comes Jesus. And John's mission is to tell people that the main event is about to begin. Like if you're at a concert, you know, and the fog machine starts to pump and the lights begin to, you know, get low, the music gets louder and, you know, okay, we're fixing the start, right? Main event's about to begin. That was John's purpose. And then Jesus arrives and when John sees Jesus coming towards him at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry he calls to everyone and says hey look that is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world now up until that time throughout the old covenant the old testament people would offer animals over and over again as as a sacrifice. Blood would be shed so that the person who sinned could avoid the penalty of an eternity apart from God. And chief of all of the animal sacrifices, at least symbolically, was the lamb. It was the lamb that God told the people to kill and take its blood and smear over the doorposts of their homes so that in faith, The death angel would pass over them as God was preparing to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. They weren't saved because they put the blood there physically. They were saved by God through faith. And So then Jesus arrives on the scene and John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he means is that Jesus is the promised rescuer of God's people, the one who will die and take away the sin of all who believe, all who turn and trust in him, all who have the blood of Jesus applied to the doorpost of their heart. 
Which means then, ever since John, this glorious declaration of the good news of the kingdom of God has gone out. It's spread, just as Jesus says. It's gone out all over the world, which is why we send out missionaries. It's why we encourage you to go out as missionaries. It's why we go to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this gospel message is still continuing to spread. It's continuing to be preached. It's continuing to go out. The good news of the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 16, you may have noticed as we were reading this earlier, there are some strange words there. Everyone forces his way into it. Those are some strange words. In fact, those are really hard to translate from the original. There's all kinds of debate about what exactly those words mean and how exactly they should be translated, which is why if you have an ESV, you probably have a note there in the bottom, a little footnote that says everyone is forcefully urged into it because translators aren't even sure the best way to translate that. Um, From my study and even from the the commentators, most of the commentators I read this week, um, it seems as though the the best way to translate that is actually the way the footnote in the ESV translates it. Everyone is forcefully urged to enter into it. The the point is, is the call. The gospel is being preached and people are being forcefully urged. They're being urgently challenged to enter into the kingdom of God. Which is why if if you have a CSB, the CSB is a, is a couple of clicks less literal, but it's actually more helpful here in this verse because they just automatically kind of translate it for us. Everyone is urgently invited to enter it. The point is, again, the kingdom news and the kingdom message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out and men and women, young and old, are compelled to enter the kingdom by faith in Jesus. The launch of God's reign through Jesus, the kingdom of God, has happened. It's here. It's arrived. And as we will see in just a few weeks later on in Luke, the Pharisees are going to be shocked and stunned at the way notorious sinners are entering into the kingdom of God ahead of them. Because they're thinking that they can enter the kingdom of God by their merit, by their own righteousness. And Jesus is clear, that is not how you enter the kingdom of God. You enter it through this gospel message that is proclaimed and being preached by faith. But just in case those listening to Jesus, both then and now, think that the arrival of God's kingdom means that the Old Testament is useless, that we can just kind of tear the Old Testament out of our Bible because it's meaningless now, Jesus corrects our thinking in verse 17 when he says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so a new day has come, a new era. The things promised in the Old Testament have now arrived in Jesus. Food laws are no longer required for believers in Jesus Christ, right? Praise the Lord. Circumcision is no longer the initiating right to be part of the people of God. The coming of Jesus Christ means that believers are no longer under the old covenant made with Israel. 
We are now under the new covenant made with Jesus. But this old covenant is not disregarded simply because we're under the new covenant. The old covenant isn't like, you know, when you order something really great from Amazon and uh, you're so excited and it arrives and it, it arrives in that, you know, the brown box and you open the box and you pull out what you love and unless you're between the ages of two and four, you don't care anything about the box after that. Because you're like, the box was only meant to deliver that which is glorious. And now that we have that which is glorious, we don't need this box anymore. We can just throw it away or stomp on it or do whatever, right? When Jesus says the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant doesn't work like that. Yes, the arrival of everything the Old Covenant pointed to is now here in me. But it doesn't mean that we throw away everything from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is useless. And if you're wondering why I keep referring to the Old Testament instead of the Law and the Prophets, it's because frequently in Jesus' ministry he refers to the Law and Prophets as just a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. The purpose of the Old Covenant, the purpose of the Law and the Prophets was to get us ready to see Jesus, to get us ready for the newness of the kingdom. But now that Jesus has arrived, it doesn't nullify the law and the prophets, it fulfills the law and the prophets because they point to Jesus. They help us, the law and the prophets help us. The Old Testament helps us by showing us and demonstrating to us the ugliness of sin and our own inability of being made right with God apart from his grace. The old covenant demonstrates how God has graciously worked with a people being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The old covenant reveals to us the justice and the glory of God. It reveals to us, as one theologian writes, God's glory in salvation through judgment. As God redeems a people who rightly should be judged. The Old Testament demonstrates all of those things. So the Old Testament is an essential part of living as a believer today. Not because we're under the Old Covenant law, but because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, gives us clarity and color to understand the character and the work of God. And it gives us the context for the gospel. One of the things that the Old Testament does, that the Old Covenant does, is it functions like the black velvet onto which the jewel of the gospel of Jesus Christ is set to provide the contrast, to show us how we are completely inept at obeying God on our own. Generation after generation after generation failing to live up to the glorious requirements of our perfect and just God. And along comes Jesus and we see in even starker contrast the glory and the wonder and the grace and the joy and the mercy of God in the gospel as we see just how unable we are, just how unable we are to save ourselves. Or to tie this back to our main paragraph, the good news is that the day of the Old Testament promises and foreshadows are over. The kingdom is at last here, and everyone is urged to enter it, not as something brand new, but as the arrival of that which the Old Testament pointed and prepared us. Now, 
When we come to verse 18, we're left maybe to scratch our heads just a little bit. Because Jesus has just been talking about kingdom life. He's just been talking specifically about money and about our hearts as it relates to money. And he's talked about the law of God and how the law of God prepares us for Christ by showing us our inability to save ourselves. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so we have a a few options here, at least a couple of options, ways to interpret this text, at least immediately when we first look at it. One is to think that Jesus is in the middle of talking and then for whatever reason, you know, he kind of has a, one of those like squirrel moments and he just immediately redirects to begin to talk about divorce. And then in verse 19 comes immediately back to the same thing that he was talking about before, kingdom life and riches and wealth in the heart. That's one option. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, Jesus does not have moments like that. The perfect son of God who's perfectly communicating to us and to them then. Another option would be to say, well, this must not belong here. Must be some translator later on, somewhere in a monastery, probably listening to monastery kinds of music, was, was translating and got his, got his fragments out of order and this got inserted in here really with, without any design or any intentionality and it doesn't belong here. And, and to say that would then be to reject that all Scripture is inspired by God and is designed and that the authors of Scripture were inspired and that what we have here is the perfect and errant Word of God. Which is what I, for a variety of reasons, believe is true, that this is without error, that this is not some sort of mistake, you know, like cut and paste. You, you've all done that. We've done that. And then you, whoops, I didn't mean to cut it in there and paste it into there. Luke is making a mistake because Luke is very precise. That's why I started this morning where we did. Luke is very precise. He's very careful. So we are left with the fact that this is supposed to be here. We've got now two more options in terms of understanding the text. Either Jesus is intending to give us a full dissertation on marriage and divorce in, these, in this one verse, And that he, just out of the blue, for whatever reason, because he's God, is teaching on money, kingdom principles, and then adds in divorce, and then goes back to money again, which is possible. I think it's more likely that Jesus is doing something else. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that what Jesus is doing here is not giving us a full dissertation on marriage and divorce. He does that elsewhere. But what Jesus is doing is illustrating the point that he has just made in a couple of ways. Jesus is illustrating what he's just been talking about. He's given them a real-life example. I think that for two reasons. First, because Jesus does not say much about divorce and remarriage here. He says a lot more in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, he makes it clear that divorce is permitted under certain narrow circumstances. And likewise, remarriage, according to the Apostle Paul, is permitted under very narrow and specific circumstances. And so the fact that 
what we have here is in a very uh, an abbreviated version of Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. I take to mean that Jesus tr- isn't trying to offer kind of a full comprehensive teaching, but rather he's just referencing divorce and remarriage to illustrate the point that he's been talking about all along. That does not mean that we just say, well, what Jesus says here isn't true, because it is true. But if we just look at this text and then we compare it to Matthew 19, we think, well, Jesus is kind of saying two different things. Well, he's not. If here he's only just pointing back to divorce and remarriage. He's not intending to give us all the caveats and all the, all the details about it as he is in Matthew 19. He's just using this to illustrate his point. He's pointing back to the Old Testament laws on divorce and remarriage to teach us something about what he's just said. Second reason, I believe that Jesus isn't introducing an entirely new theme out of the blue, has to do with what Jesus has just been talking about in verses 16 and 17. So if you remember, in these two verses, Jesus has just been telling the Pharisees that God sees the heart and that God's intent is not that they just follow him with their external actions but that they truly are changed from the heart. He's shown them that people can externally follow the law on the outside and yet on the inside have hearts that are dead. They can actually be an abomination to the Lord even though on the outside it looks like they're really spiritual. They follow the Lord. They do Bible studies. Maybe they have an MDiv. They certainly have to be loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that isn't always the case. So he's just made that point. And then he has told them that this kingdom news is available. That they are urged to enter into the kingdom. Like, come on, enter into the kingdom. Trust, believe by faith. And he's reminded them that the Old Testament prophets had said that there is a day coming when God would write his law, not on stone, but on the hearts of his people. That that the law is not going to pass away. He hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. And he does so now by pulling up an Old Testament law that had been so kind of uh, maligned and watered down and distorted by the Pharisees. And he's pulling out this law to show them, look, see, I am not changing the law. I'm not watering down the law. I'm not distorting the law. You're the ones who have done that in your attempt to please mankind. In your desire to please people, which reflects back to verse 15, they want to appear just in the sight of God, so they're going to try to please other people, or they, they want to they appear just in the sight of humanity, so they're going to try to please people, and he says, you're gonna, the reason you are changing these laws on divorce is because you're trying to please people. I am upholding that which Yahweh gave from the beginning. The Pharisees of Jesus' day either largely ignored divorce and remarriage laws or they created so many exemptions that divorce was permitted for almost any reason. We, we see that in their writings, in fact. It's why I think the Pharisees so often question Jesus on divorce and remarriage because what Jesus says is so far from what they have been teaching. R.C. Sproul wrote, this is not Jesus' fullest teaching on marriage and divorce. 
His intention here is to remind the Pharisees of the importance of the law. These men who claimed to be pillars of the Old Testament law were violating that law every day. And nowhere more noticeably than in their utter disregard for, the Old, for Old Testament legislation about marriage. They were quick to grant divorces. Why? Because this is what the people wanted. These men were more concerned to receive the applause of the people than to receive the blessings of God. So Jesus is making this point by pulling up divorce and remarriage that the Pharisees don't even fully follow the law and the prophets. It's as though he is saying, okay, you think you are just before men by following the law? Okay, let's talk about divorce and remarriage. You don't even follow those laws. You don't even teach faithfully those laws. And I tell you that the law is not going to pass away. I've come to fulfill the law, not throw the law out the window. I think there's one other thing going on here in verse 18 as well. It could be the reason Jesus brings up this teaching on divorce and remarriage. You see, just as God's design for husband and wife is that they become one flesh, inseparable, Jesus' ministry in the New Testament and the Old Testament promises and prophecies are inseparably linked. Like There is one triune God who is doing one redemptive work across two covenants, the old and the new. And although some will want to divorce Jesus' kingdom from all that has gone before, Jesus here is emphasizing continuity. And that's what he's doing in verse 17. We see it in verse 16. Law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. But it's easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's almost like Jesus saying the baton has been passed off from the Old Testament to the New. From the Old Covenant to the New. To the gospel message of the kingdom of God. But don't think now that the first baton carrier is unimportant. That baton carrier is important and still serves a function. Still serves a purpose. We can't divorce Jesus' kingdom in the new covenant, from the promises and prophecies and the need for a new covenant expressed in the old covenant. Just as Jesus can't be divorced from his kingdom, the new covenant is connected to the old. And just as the new covenant completes the old, the old provides the basis for the new. Now, take a deep breath. Because I know we've covered a lot. I know, again, this morning has been headier and thicker than normal. Um, So what I want to do is I want to encourage you to spend some time in this text over the next week or two. Consult uh, the text. Pray that the Lord would give you wisdom as you seek to understand this part of the word. Go to scripture. Go to commentaries. What I want to do, though, as we close our time together is I want to draw out three applications that are not complex that come from our text this morning. Number one, God sees our heart. I think that's so clear here, isn't it? God sees our heart. The Pharisees only paid attention to the outside, their image, their status. 
And that is tempting for us as well, especially in our our selfie-obsessed times. We all want to look a certain way, seem a certain way, convey a certain image. It's tempting to manipulate things to make people think a certain way about us. It's tempting to only be concerned with what happens on the outside and not concern ourselves with what happens on the inside. Brothers and sisters, that is dangerous. And that is an abomination to God. God sees the heart. God sees where we are overproducing our lives to try to demonstrate something to other people or overproducing our abilities or overproducing our worship gatherings to try to impress or wow or whatever it is. He sees the heart. He sees our true motivations and our true intentions. And this church is a place where it is okay to not be okay. Like this is a place where humility is valued more than impressiveness. And where we struggle and we sometimes fall and we fail and where people willingly admit that they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we are also a people who have been forever changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that grace compels us then to love and help one another in our pursuit of holiness. Like we are not perfect, but we need one another as we strive together towards the prize of Christ. And so we move towards each other. We move towards brokenness. We move towards those who are different, those who are alone, those who are struggling, and we love and we counsel and we serve and we encourage. That's who we are as a church. It's what we aim for as the body of Christ corporately. And I hope that you are finding that to be true, not only in your conversations here in this auditorium or out in the foyer or out in the parking lot, but in small groups, in Bible studies, that here among siblings of the faith, we can be vulnerable. We can be known. We can be honest where the, the inside isn't matching the outside. So that we can help one another. Secondly, following Jesus includes evaluating culture through the lens of Scripture. And Jesus' words here at the end of verse 15 should be a warning for all of us. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There is a category in Scripture, although it is highly unpopular, there is a category in Scripture for things that are culturally acceptable and even culturally esteemed and yet ultimately are an abomination in the sight of God. And that's good for us to hear. That's good for us to hear in the church as well. Where there's a tendency sometimes to perform, to seem a certain way, to, to produce a certain effect when we gather from the platform or from one another. But God sees the heart. 
And we should be evaluating everything in our culture and everything, all the temptations of our hearts through the lens of Scripture. Because something's popularity has nothing to do with its godliness. And Jesus is clear that there is a category of things which are popular and exalted. Things that our world idolizes and prioritizes and loves, yet are detestable in the sight of God. It's God's opinion that matters. We as God's people, people of his kingdom ought to evaluate everything. Our goals, our priorities, our values, our entertainment, our clothes, our music, our finances, our humor. Through the lens of God's word. What what does God's word teach us? It's God's opinion that counts both now and for eternity. Maybe you were like me and in high school, you like really wanted to be liked, really wanted to be popular. Never made it. I wanted to. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be esteemed in a certain way by certain people. I remember my parents saying, you know what, Eric, by the time you're like 30, you won't even care who was popular or not in high school. You won't even care what people in high school thought about you. And they were wrong, because I think it was like by the time I was 23 that you begin to not even care. Maybe 20. <laughs> Some of you are like, I was in, I'm in high school now and I don't even care. Right? Praise the Lord. You're more spiritually mature than I. But the same principle applies. Like, we can put so much emphasis on what the people around us think of us, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, or our classmates, or our teammates, or the people online, or the people who comment on our posts. And it's God's opinion that matters both now and in eternity. Finally, we should receive the good news of the kingdom of God. Like we can't escape that application point because that's so clear here in verse 16. Like We live in the days after John the Baptist. We live in the days after the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth, and yet the good news of the kingdom of God still continues to go out into our world. Like It won't always be like that. The Bible is clear that there is a day coming when mission work and evangelism will end. But until that time, the kingdom News of Jesus Christ goes out into the world and everyone is urged to enter it. So what about you? Have you entered into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death? If not, I would urge you, I would forcefully, not physically forcefully, I'm not gonna come down and urge you, but I would urge you to trust in Jesus Christ today, to turn and believe in the Son of God who lived without sin and died on the cross as a substitute for all who believe and rose from the dead three days later and is presently ruling and reigning and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and will one day, any time now, return and establish his kingdom in its fullness. Trust in him today, friends. Become a brother and sister in Christ. Like visas are still being printed and being offered for the kingdom of God even now. They will not always. But in this moment they are. Would you turn and would you trust by faith? And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
be reminded this morning that our mission is to live and to speak the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray, even today, that the Lord would put someone in our path to whom we can urge to enter this kingdom.